Hello and welcome to the University Guide podcast. I'm David Hawkins, an independent college counsellor living in England. In this episode, my topic is the college admission scandal in the USA, which hit the news earlier this week in March 2019. The scandal has generated huge amounts of press interest and attention and sparked huge debates in the college admissions online discussion groups. It even made the news here in the UK. And I wanted to devote an episode of this podcast to try to unpick and explain some of this to a UK or international audience who might not be completely clued up on exactly what has happened here. Some of the conversations I've heard in my travels around the UK has been an assumption that people have paid their way into a US college, which, though true, isn't actually illegal. US college is expensive to start with, and the ability to pay the full fees makes a difference in the process. So in that way, having money does make a difference. There's also a well-trodden path of making donations to universities, typically eye-watering amounts of money amounting to many millions, in which an applicant is deemed to be part of an institutional advancement case, which at some universities can help students get admission. No, what we have in this current legal case is something different. And it's a process where someone very familiar with some of the unusual aspects of US college admissions has spotted a series of ways to cheat the system and helped parents through them. To make this clear, I'll quote from the US Department of Justice's affidavit about exactly what is under investigation. And I quote, the scheme included the following, bribing college entrance exam administrators to allow a third party to facilitate cheating on college entrance exams in some cases by posing as the actual students, and in others by providing students with answers during the exams or by correcting their answers after they had completed the exams. Bribing university athletics coaches and administrators to designate applicants as purported athletic recruits, regardless of their athletic abilities, and in some cases, even though they did not play the sport they were purportedly recruited to play, thereby facilitating their admission to universities in place of more qualified applicants. Having a third party take classes in place of the actual students, with the understanding that grades earned in those classes would be submitted as part of the students' college applications. And then finally, submitting falsified applications for admission to universities in the District of Massachusetts and elsewhere that, among other things, included the fraudulently obtained exam scores and class grades and often listed fake awards and athletic activities. At the heart of this is William Rich Singer, who created this system and help parents cheat the system. The way to cheat this system actually is quite simple, and it combines knowledge of sports recruiting at these elite academic universities with a detailed understanding of general admissions to those universities and also a knowledge of how US standardised tests are conducted in order to come up with this plan. Now, as one of relatively few Brits who really understands these areas, I can explain how it went down. The first thing that you need to understand is that at some of the more quote-unquote elite US universities, you have two types of sports teams. You have those which are regulated by the NCAA, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, and those which compete at a high level but lie outside of that. NCAA sports have incredibly complicated and tight rules about recruiting students for college sports. Watch the end of the film The Blind Side to see more. But sports that aren't NCAA are different. Sports such as fencing or sailing, for example. Now, the families in these cases in the media this week 
didn't need the money that comes with a sports scholarship in order to be able to afford to attend these universities. Clearly, these are very wealthy people. But what they did need was something which would help their students to get into these universities, which deny in some cases upward of 90% of their applicants, many of whom are absolutely stellar students. In the college admissions world, we call this the hook. Yes, the student is academically qualified, but what else have you got? Sports can be a hook, as can institutional advancement or development, as I mentioned above. A hook can be your family background, your nationality, obscure subjects you're really interested in, and many other things. In this case, Mr Singer worked out that he could use sports as the hook for these families. So stage one was to find sports coaches who, A, worked at elite colleges where they had sway over admissions, and B, were willing to give one of their spots to a student who they knew actually wasn't good enough to be on their team or squad. There's no need to go into the detail of how much money was paid to whom and by what means. It's all online. But clearly Mr Singer found a good number of people who would do this. Now, once he had coaches willing to do this, he now needed to make those students appear to be realistic athletic applicants. On the sports side, that's really okay. The times were faked, images were photoshopped and other similar things because the coach who'd been fixed actually has a huge amount of discretion in athletic recruitment. What was more complicated was that as well as being athletically capable of going to these universities, the students had to be also academically capable. And this is where stage two comes in. Students applying to university in the US typically have their academic level measured by two things. How well they've done in classes at school and how well they've done on one of the two standardised tests, the SAT or the ACT. First off, to make the students academically qualified based on their school record, the students' grades had to be improved. And unlike in systems like here in the UK where we have A-levels and pre-U, or indeed for things like the IB diploma, US grades aren't based on terminal exams, but on performance in a class over a semester. Now, some of the students in these cases had good grades. Their transcripts, which listed these grades, were good enough to be considered academically by these universities. But others in these cases did not. So these students, alongside high school or perhaps instead of high school, were enrolled in online classes, which someone else took for them, gaining higher grades, which then went on to their transcript. Then to make the students academically qualified based on their SAT or ACT, a further level of intricacy was required. To manage this, the people involved in this process had to, in their terms, control the centre. They had to have control over the testing centre where the SAT or the ACT actually was taken. To those completely new to this world, students taking the SAT or the ACT don't automatically have to take their test at their own school. Unlike for GCSEs or A-levels where a school registers a student to take it at their school, for SAT or ACT, students book themselves online into a test centre and then turn up on the day with ID that matches the data that they provided on registration. Now, these test centres are actually usually schools, but not necessarily the students' own school. And the pay that people get for running the SAT or ACT, quite often usually in the US on a Saturday, is not great. I used to be an SAT centre supervisor here in the UK. I had access to the test papers and the answer booklets, and I had the responsibility to send the completed answer sheets 
back to the testing companies. So to control the test centres, Singer and his team did a few different things. Some of the students went through a process of getting approval to take the exams with extra time, what's called accommodations in the US. And this is a process which needs an educational psychologist report. Students granted accommodations in some circumstances have a test that's administered differently, and that could allow someone access to that completed test. Other of these, of these students took the tests at places where those administering those tests had actually been paid off. Regardless of the nuance, the students took the SAT or the ACT somewhere where the people in charge of making sure the tests were conducted fairly were being paid to not do so. Now, you also have to understand that the SAT and the ACT are multiple choice tests, apart from the optional essay or writing section. The SAT is now done on a computer outside the US, but inside the US, students still answer the questions by filling in circles on an answer sheet, and the SAT is the same. Students will read the question, work out if it's answer A, B, C or D, and then on a separate answer sheet, shade in the circle. So by controlling the centre, Singer was able to make sure that the students, most likely actually without their knowledge, would do the test and have the answer sheet changed. Here's how CW1 from the affidavit describes it. And what will happen is you'll go in, CW2 will be your proctor. And so this is, this is again how it all works. She'll take the test. It'll be all her taking the test. And then at the end of the test, it will be decided that we want to score, let's say, 33. So that she never has to take the test again. It'll be one and done. Then she'll, you guys will leave. And then CW2 will then look at all of her answers. Because her answers will be put on a separate sheet of paper and then CW2 will go through the answers and will figure out on all four of the, there's five sections, the fifth is writing, on all four sections. And he will decipher her answers and, and he will go back and, and ensure that he makes it so that her score ends up being between a 32 and a 34, just depending on the curve for that particular test day. And normally he's right on. And that essentially is how it would happen. So what we have explained there, then, is the how the students who appear to be talented sports people and who also appear to be academically qualified to get into this college, and the coach has been bribed to give one of his spots to one of these people. In the affidavit, this actually is described quite openly by CW1. OK, so who we are. What we do is we help the wealthiest families in the US get their kids into school. Every year there are is a group of families, especially where I am right now in the Bay Area, Palo Alto, I just flew in, that they want guarantees, they want this thing done. They don't want to be messing around with this thing. And so they want in at certain schools. So I did 761, what I would call side doors. There is a front door, which means you get in on your own. The back door is through institutional advancement, which is 10 times as much money. And I've created this side door in. Because the back door, when you go through institutional advancement, as you know, everybody's got a friend of a friend who knows somebody who knows somebody, but there's no guarantee. They're just going to give you a second look. My families want a guarantee. So if you said to me, here's our grades, here's our scores, here's our ability, and we want to go to X school, and you give me one or two schools, and then I'll go after those schools and try to get a guarantee done. So that by the time the summer of her senior year, before her senior year, hopefully we can have this thing done. So that in the fall, before December 15th, you already know she's in. Done. 
and you make a financial commitment. Depends on what school you want, may determine how much that actually is, but that's kind of how the side and backdoor work. So that's how they did this. But more importantly, where to from here? Well, firstly, US sports recruitment has always been an area with many shades of grey. And if this issue can prompt people to clear some of that up, then some good work will be done. Secondly, there are actually some young people here who are at the centre of this and who must now be in a deep state of shock and trauma. Some of these students were given the answers on the SAT and ACT and are complicit in this. But for many others of them, in all likelihood, they may not have known the lengths that their parents were going to to get them admission to these colleges. Thirdly, I hope that there's a big reaction to the idea of how your child going to a certain name university or type of university is a badge of honour for a family. Whether it's a, quote, elite school, an Ivy League university or the Russell Group here in the UK, Students should be applying to universities that are right for them, not to universities that are a badge of honour or a validation of status for their parents, or dare I say school. In the worst cases, students may be applying to universities so the parents can brag about it over a dinner party or at the country club. But here in the UK, and indeed across Europe, I spot a further issue. Most of my work is about helping students navigate application processes that are completely new to them. And within that work, the vast majority involves some part of a US college application. I don't like to think of what I do as a business, but in reality it is. And I have to be honest, I compete for this business. Families have choices about who to get help from. And high schools have choices about who they put in front of their students to talk about US and international applications. Who they invite to events, who they recommend to their families. And I have one disadvantage in that I'm not American, nor did I go to university in the USA. What I do have is membership of the International Association for College Admissions Counselling and a long-standing history in that organisation and a deep commitment to following the code of ethics and professional practice of its parents body, NACAC. I'm also one of a small number of consultants given affiliated consultancy status in this area by the Council of International Schools which vets candidates for this status with a very high bar. Now, being honest, almost never do these memberships make a difference to a family or a school when they choose who to work with to help their son or daughter or students. I'd like to think it's not the case, but also I'm not naive. How many William McSingers are there in the UK or Europe right now helping students find new side doors into US colleges? while most students, parents, schools and consultants play by the rules. The analogy I've used when talking to schools is that they wouldn't bring in someone purporting to be a doctor to treat an ill student. Even if they sounded like a doctor and spoke the right words, you'd want to check that they actually were a doctor. Clearly, that's a high bar and perhaps an extreme analogy. But what about a violin teacher? They might hold the violin properly and be able to describe the parts of the violin but actually, will they just teach a student to mime well to one of Mozart's violin concertos, rather than to master the instrument? US college admissions, as this horrible scandal shows, is vastly complicated, crazily complicated, bafflingly complicated, perhaps unnecessarily complicated. I hope that by deconstructing this issue, 
I've made it more understandable to my listeners who are not fully aware of the intricacies of US admissions and along the way perhaps made the case for schools in the UK and Europe to take their necks out of the sand and join the small but growing number who make the case for ethical, accredited, independent college counselling as a positive addition to a school's university advising team. Thanks for listening. More podcasts coming soon.